This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It was a number of things. Um, I think, particularly in Java, this is from the beginning, there was some sort of connection I felt. Like, I liked the fact that, you know, there was a, a kind of a quiet, fairly normal surface to life in and around Georgia, but then there was all these other interesting Intensities. things going on <laughs> going on under the surface. And I, you know, and I, as we were filming and meeting healers and things like that, I sort of got more into those. <laughs> yeah. um, or got, that always hooks people, <laughs> yeah, the, the healers, yeah. But I liked how, I liked how people negotiated the two yeah. part, or for things that for me were very separate, just sort yeah. of normal life and then healers, or even like yeah. the way people negotiated their religious identities. Right. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. I'm Ahmad Fat Rahmat, and this is the show that explores concepts, theories, and society. I'm happy to welcome uh, Doug Ingvison to the show. You are the uh, Assistant Professor of Film and Television Studies at the University of Nottingham, uh, Malaysia campus. Welcome to the show, dude. Thank you. Happy so to be here. <laughs> first things first, let's list the things you do. I mean, you do a lot of different things, right? So you're a cinematographer. Yeah. In addition to being, you know, an educator, teacher, uh, and of course a scholar, but you're also a skater, aren't you? Yes, I am a skateboarder. <laughs> and uh, I was very happy to discover there's a small skate park in Kajang near oh, okay. my house. So I'm a regular skater at that park. And so how's it been like? Because, I mean, you've traveled around the world and you've worked a lot on Indonesia. Yeah. How's it like to be in Kaja? I mean, what what are your impressions of it so far? Hmm. It's interesting. It's I mean, being in Malaysia itself is very different. The whole way that language works here, yeah. you know, trying to figure out which language to speak to which person when you mean obviously on campus it's no problem. Everyone speaks English. But yeah, it's been an interesting experience. Uh, the skate park I like. I seem to be able to get along in Malay there pretty well, okay. you know, with my Indonesian. And, sure, I, and sure. I'm getting to the point where I can sort of adjust my Indonesian to sound more Malay yeah. or to use more kind of Malay-appropriate words and, yeah. and not use words like Lumayan that confuse people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or Sorono, right? Yeah. Which means a whole entirely different thing there. Yeah. Um, you know, people think that there are a lot of similarities between two languages, but they're not seamless. The transition demands a bit of effort, I feel. Yeah. No, if it demands a lot of effort. But what confuses me is that with some people, I can speak very fluently, and with other people, for reasons I haven't figured out yet, it's totally hard. Like, I can't understand them. They don't really understand me. Right, right. It may have to do with accent or how fast people speak, or it may even be that some people have more experience in Indonesia and can adjust their own speech to me. Right, right. Because <laughs> then they'll, they'll ask why I speak sort of Malay and I say, oh, mm -hmm. I've been in Indonesia for a long time. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's an interesting process. So, so at this point, you're just managing the communication. Yeah, I mean, have you really gotten to the vernacular and the idiosyncrasies of 
Malaysian bahasa yet, or is it just being coherent? Not, not really. I don't, right. I don't think so. Um, I mean, I may have picked up certain things because I never know. Sure, sure. It's the same way that in Indonesia, you know, I live in Georgia a lot of the time, and so sometimes I don't know when I'm speaking Javanese because I just pick things up from mm-hmm. people because they mm-hmm. throw in a lot of Javanese. So sometimes people elsewhere will say, "Hey, why are you speaking Javanese?" And I said, "I didn't know I was." Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so that may have happened, but I'm not sure. But it's, yeah, it's it's getting a little better. Yeah. So uh, I want to pick your brain a lot more on this comparison because this okay. is something that's that's just always, like, talked about, right? How different we are and stuff like that. But what would you say are among the more compelling differences between the two contexts? Mm. <laughs> uh, well, one, I think, as I said, language uh-huh. It's a huge thing because, you know, I've learned more about language and how language functions here since I've been here. I right, didn't know right. that much about Malaysia. So, you know, having Malay be the national language but be a national language that some groups don't speak mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. Uh, or some groups that I, I've learned sort of avoid speaking or avoid right. learning. And also I think, you know, I've actually talked about this in a class where we talk about the Malaysian education system Mm -hmm. and I sort of went and compared it to Indonesia because it was something I could talk about more easily. You know, the advent of, there have been Chinese schools in both places, Chinese Mm -hmm. language schools for a long time, but in the 50s they were outlawed in Mm -hmm. Indonesia for complex reasons, one of them being that China was sort of using the Chinese schools as a sort of a political tool to assert mm-hmm. influence in Indonesia, and Sukarno eventually decided that was a bad idea. Yeah. So they banned Chinese schools, and Chinese Indonesians were, after the 50s, were basically, you know, had to speak mm-hmm. Indonesian, had to go to school in Indonesian, and um, after 1965 also, they were not allowed to use Chinese names and things right. like that, which certainly went too far in Mm -hmm. most people's opinion, including mine. But here, Chinese schools, as far as I understand, have been around for a long, long time also, but then were allowed to stay in place after the 50s and during the 60s and and until now. And Mm -hmm. of course, there's Mm -hmm. complications with how they interact with the national education system. But I think the existence, the continued existence of schools in other languages has been one of the factors that maybe, you know, has... I mean, it's good in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. because it allows people to have other choices in education and the politics of Malay language here are different than the politics of Indonesian language in Mm -hmm. in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. But it's one of the things that you can point to that has led to, you know, less common language skills perhaps um, and more diversity in some ways in language here, which is good. And this is, you know... The banning of Chinese-associated things in Indonesia is something that's also often rightly pointed to with a critical, you know, with yeah. a critical sort of take on what Indonesia does and how it homogenizes people. But the end result now is that probably about 95% of people, I would guess, speak Indonesian fairly mm-hmm. fluently, yeah. whereas in Malay, it's much more varied, I would say, in right, Malaysia. Right. Um, so that's that's one thing that I've become interested in and, and noticed. Yeah. But, uh, what can you say about the different political cultures, though, insofar as, you know, um, Malaysia is a constitutional monarchy. Sure. Uh, we had a relatively, how would you say, uh, tame process of decolonization sure. as compared to Indonesia, which had a revolution. Right. So I think that I, I wonder the extent to which this explains the two different political cultures, right? And so far as this seems to be, or at least the perception from here at least, is a lot more vitality 
in Indonesia as compared to mm. here, right? In terms of discourse, mm. in terms of the sort of social experiments that happen there, right. you know, especially when it comes to Islam, for example. Right? Sure. There's a bigger range of options there ideologically than, say, here. Uh, have you made any observations about that? Yeah, are you still <laughs> sort of feeling things out? I mean, I'm feeling things out, but yeah, you do. I mean, these are things that you think about all the time because <laughs> right. I've spent almost 20 years in Indonesia, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. a lot, of, a lot, a lot of time there and a lot of my friends are there. So then when you come here, you start thinking about the differences and, you know, how stark they are compared mm -hmm. to what I actually thought they would be. I knew there would be some differences. But, yeah, I think one of the things is, I mean, this also goes back to language. Um, in Indonesia, language policies during colonialism were very different. Um, the Dutch sort of limited access to Dutch to a very, very small group of elite Indonesians that were sort of bureaucrats that helped the colonial authority. And here, as in other places that were British colonies, English was a sort of a commodity mm -hmm. that they needed to sell to people. And then Britain often wanted to open markets by having people learn English and things like that. So, um, you know, the relationship to that European language has long, long-ranging effects here. Mm -hmm. um, I think Malaysia is better able to engage with certain global discourses and things like that because English has stayed mm -hmm. a kind of a strong force here. But it's also another factor. You know, that's a sort of a competing language for Malay to mm -hmm. be the national language, and it's one that sort of interrupts the process of building a sort of a, a lingua franca that everyone speaks fluently. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one thing. But I think... And not having fought against the British, mm -hmm. I think, is, is another factor there. Right, and you right. can see in Indonesia, like, some people did speak Dutch and some of the intelligentsia, a lot of the intelligentsia yeah, yeah. spoke Dutch. Uh, but they were also revolutionaries and they didn't, you know, as far as I can see, they didn't really fight to keep Dutch in play after independence. So you have people like... Kairil Anwar, who was the national poet, who came to be considered the sort of big national poet mm -hmm. figure uh, there, who also spoke Dutch very fluently, who spoke English very fluently, but really worked to sort of develop Indonesian as a language that you could use for art, yeah. for yeah. artistic expression, for nationalist artistic expression. Um, unfortunately, he died the same year that Indonesia gained independence, but his mm -hmm. influence is huge, right? Mm -hmm. And I also think in terms of, yeah, the concept of dynamism or how sort of popular culture and also political and social discourses work. And I don't know, maybe you can point to figures that are like this in the past in Malaysia, but my perception is there are maybe less figures that sort of have this kind of nakal controversial bent to them right, right. That, that are controversial when they were alive and in their work and things like that, but are still sort of lifted up to the status of yeah. a national hero in a yeah. sense. So, so that's, a, that's a really good way to kind of enter the discussion, right? Like, because we had, we had a lot of, we still do a lot of nakal figures, but mm. whether they're celebrated as national icons, uh -huh. that's another question, right? So I'm thinking people like, Shannon Ahmad, for example, mm. uh, or uh, Kasim Ahmad even, who were rebellious in the younger years, you know, but later on turned more Islamic uh, mm. when uh, that appeared to be the, uh, the ideological alternative to the hegemony. And even then, today, they're not necessarily hailed in the way, say, maybe like even Soho Ghee, for example, is quite right. mainstream, you know. I mean, they might not be like, celebrated national icons, but right. it appears that, I mean, they, they made a movie about him right. and there's nothing to that scale here, hmm. you know, or Tan Malacca, right? I mean, there are debates now on what right. his legacy should be, but 
uh, these debates on national television, <laughs> and it's even a question right. that, that's posed yeah. right at that level that people could then uh, make up their minds on. We don't necessarily have that extent of exposure for radical mm. discourse, you know, um, in the way that Indonesia has. But I think it goes back to the fact that there was a successful revolution in the end. Right. And I think revolutionary countries tend to be, uh, as a whole, more nationalistic. I mean, that, that's, that's sort of one broad mm. argument that's been made before mm. in that uh, your identity was earned out of struggle. Right. right and um it wasn't even just nationalistic it was internationalistic right. mr carno tried to you know through bandung make a right. third world vision come true uh, right. short lived but still interesting initiative <laughs> yeah. he himself was an interesting guy you know spoke dutch yes. german french you know yeah. very global and i mean in that sense malaysia is not as privileged to have mm. that pedigree quote unquote you know sure yeah so but out of the 20 years that you had what made you choose film um one of the things that made me choose film was the fact that I'm a filmmaker. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I came to Indonesia in 2000 without knowing much at all about Indonesia. Uh, I had made a film about a sort of an ethnographically focused film about the porn industry in Los Angeles uh, called Rated X, A Journey Through Porn that had done a lot of festivals. And I had also wanted to have it shown in college classes and things like that. And it, uh, through that, an anthropologist got to see it and liked it, uh, an anthropologist from UCLA who works in Indonesia, whose mm. research is primarily in Bali and in central Java. And so he actually approached me and asked me to help him make films out of his research. Mm -hmm. So I said, great, you know, I had studied film and anthropology, so this was a way to sort of really do what I had studied and learn something about Indonesia. So I came with him, and we collaborated together for about seven years uh, and came up with a series of short films that focus on culture and mental illness, which mm -hmm. is his research. But we also made the film 40 Years of Silence, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is about the politics of 1965 right. and the after effects of 1965, um, which actually came out of studying trauma cases. Mm -hmm. And one of the trauma cases that happened was a young man at the time whose family had problems with 1965. Right. And so we sort of got led into politics through yeah. trying to study trauma. And this was something that was much more interesting to me, yeah. you know, in terms of my personal take on things. And um, can you just sort of situate the sort of breakthrough that 40 Years of Silence made? I mean, because... Before Joshua Oppenheimer, there was that movie. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, I mean, because I was trying to look into how, what sort of discourses there were about 65, you know. Right. And when it came to films, yours was mm. the one that's often mentioned. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't like to frame it as a breakthrough. This is one of the criticisms I have of Oppenheimer's. I'm very interested in his films. I think sure. they're great, but I also have some criticism. One of them is that I don't think they should be necessarily framed as breakthroughs. Right, right. Um, they are in certain ways. Um, ours was in certain ways. But there were also, you know, there's an Australian film called Shadow Play that, that was okay. about 1965 okay. yeah. that came I out before that. ours. And there are numerous, numerous short films made by Indonesians. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them called Mass Grave, which is a great, also a great film. That When was that? That was, I think, came out in like 2003, four, okay. five, something right, like that. Right. So before, uh, 40 Years of Silence, I think, came out in 2009 mm -hmm. officially. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we went to like events in Jakarta. Into, we went to a big commemoration 40 years of after 1965 in Jakarta. And there were big theater performances and public discussions. And, you know, Gustur mm -hmm. Abdurrahman Wahid came right, and spoke right. also. So this this wasn't, it wasn't like we were sort of breaking the news about right, 1965. Right. We may have made one of the first longer, more right. in-depth documentaries about it, but 
you know, I felt like we were working in parallel with Indonesians who had in, in one way or another been working on 1965 since 1965 happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I also talk about in my, in my dissertation slash book project is some of the films that came out in the early 70s, which are popular films. A lot of them focus on the lives of prostitutes in Jakarta, sometimes in other cities, but often in Jakarta, uh, where a prostitute or a woman usually who has come to the city from the villages to seek, seek her fortune, basically, mm -hmm. to find work in difficult economic times has fallen into prostitution and then becomes sort of an avenue for viewers to look into exactly what's wrong with the system mm -hmm. after Suharto has, has arisen. Mm -hmm. um, and often, you know, brothels are presented as places where political figures and powerful businessmen come to sort mm -hmm. of hang out with these women. So these women also hear all these things that are going on and know about yeah. the sort of structural corruption that's happening and things like that. Yeah. So. To me, these are films about 1965 also. It's at a time mm -hmm. when you can't say Suharto did this or Suharto right, did that right. or the military killed all these people. But you can point to something that went very wrong um, at this time. And also in terms of gender and power and things yeah. like that, these are interesting films. Wonderful. Um, interesting stuff. Uh, let's take a break for now and I'll okay. get back uh, more into your thoughts on Indonesian cinema yeah, this is Night School. I'm Ahmad Farahmat. Along with Doug Ingvison, he is assistant professor at uh, University of Nottingham, Malaysia campus. And this is BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. We have uh, Doug Ingvison here to talk to us about uh, Indonesian cinema, but also uh, popular culture more broadly. And he is an assistant professor at the University of uh, Nottingham, Malaysia campus. My colleague, essentially... In the first part of the show, we talked a lot about context uh, before we get into uh, the details of the topic. And now we can uh, transition into the question of cinema more specifically. So your research has focused on uh, post-independence uh, Indonesian cinema. Why that period? Well, as I was saying earlier... You know, I kind of came to cinema because I came to Indonesia as a filmmaker. And then when we were working on topics that were not related to cinema per se, I was curious about Indonesian cinema. So this is in the early 2000s, and I started buying DVDs. And I kind of became interested in the way that films were made there and the way that people often did a lot with sort of a low budget and uh, or a low-ish budget and, you know, not necessarily focusing on things like action or things that were sort of functioning as blockbuster tropes in other places, but sort of working with what they had and making interesting stories often with, you know, technically competent filmmaking and things like that, or sort of interesting use of lighting and mm -hmm. camera work and things like that. So I, I became inspired by these films also because I'm someone who works without big budgets for the most part. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've been a documentary filmmaker for the most part also, but I'm interested in fictional films and am and, and always looking for sort of inspiration in various kinds mm -hmm. of work. Mm -hmm. So this is what drew me into cinema originally. I then also, because I was working with an anthropologist and we were showing our work at UCLA and other places a lot um, and discussing it, I kind of got interested in getting back into academia. Mm -hmm. And then I started a PhD program in 2008. So that's about 15 years after I graduated from undergrad. Mm -hmm. uh, during undergrad, I'd sort of at first really hated theory when mm -hmm. I was introduced, first introduced to theory. Actually, in, in high school, I was asked to read Henry David Thoreau, and I hated it and refused yeah. to read it. Why is this so difficult to read? Right, Why right. do they make it obscure? Why do they make it, you know, difficult to sort of understand? Um, and then in early college, I also had that reaction to theory, but I had one class that I really liked 
the teacher, and it was a theory-heavy class. We read a whole, like, you know, theory book every week. It was a lot of work, but the teacher sort of inspired me to get into it, and that that was sort of my opening into theory where I realized that I like this and mm-hmm. I actually might understand it and might be able to do something with it. So when I was working, you know, with this anthropologist and we were talking about things and I was talking to a lot of people that read theory and I had started sort of getting back into theory and actually had a sense that I wanted to stop. I became really interested in Indonesia, but I felt like I didn't know enough and right. I wanted to right. sort of stop and read for a while and, and look around, whereas we were kind of constantly producing films. So this was one of the things that made me want to go back to yeah. graduate school. So, uh, but I guess uh, just so that maybe uh, we can understand the drive behind this, what yeah. was it about Indonesia that spoke to you? Um, Rather than just the happenstance of meeting another filmmaker, uh, anthropologist in LA and, and, you know, but I mean, you, you've really like dug deep. Yeah. What was it? Yeah, um, it, it was it was a number of things. Um, I think particularly in Java, this is from the beginning. There was some sort of connection I felt like I liked the fact that you know there was a a kind of a quiet, fairly normal surface to life in and around Georgia. But then there was all these other interesting things going on going on under the surface. And I you know and I, as we were filming and meeting healers and things like that, I sort of got more into those. <laughs> Yeah. Um, or got, that always hooks people, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the healers, yeah. But I liked how I liked how people negotiated the two yeah. part, or for things that for me were very separate, just sort yeah. of normal life and then healers, or even like yeah. the way people negotiated their religious identities. Right. Where in, in the states, you know, people who were like, "I'm this religion," were sort of a separate group and were really into their religion and didn't hang out with people right. so much. Right. N- not always that that didn't claim religion or yeah. that you know or that were sort of so called normal and. I I was interested in the way that people had, you know, religious identity could be a very important part of somebody's sort of personhood in Indonesia, but yeah. then they were still, you know, cool in a way. That, that, <laughs> that, yeah. And this is a broad generalization about sure, America, sure. but there is this sort of these sort of patterns that you yeah. see and that yeah. there wasn't this sort of split between, oh, I'm religious, but I'm not like this yeah. um, or yeah. I don't have these other sort of interesting more, you know, quote unquote, modern tendencies or habits yeah. or things like that. So I, I became interested in how people negotiated things like that um, in Indonesia and in Java. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the things that sort of drew me in. And I also, you know, through the process of making films there, met a lot of people from particularly from the Institute of Arts, uh, EC in Georgia. Musicians, uh, other filmmakers, um, people who ended up collaborating on sections of 40 Years of Silence, on the music, on making, you know, mock-up scenes of burning books from the Mm -hmm. 1960s and things like that. So I met some people that I really liked, Mm -hmm. that I felt like I could collaborate with, and that I ended – some of them whom I ended up collaborating with more after I stopped working with the anthropologist. So that that was another part. Right. So transitioning to being a scholar of Indonesia, especially being American – Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a different set of intellectual challenges in that you're sort of, whether you realize it or not, continuing a discourse that is already rich and established. Sure. Right. So uh, Clifford Gertz, for right. example, right, Benedict Anderson, these are people that you have to engage with, especially if you're doing a dissertation, right, a sure. full, full in-depth sort of uh, length academic exercise. So did that help or did that become more of a burden, right? Because I know a lot of, I mean, having mm. been in a few grad schools by now, I know people who just, you know, target obscure third world countries because nothing's been done about those countries right. and they can just <laughs> become the breakthrough historical <laughs> scholar. Right. But you've come to pretty much like one of the more established yeah. 
sort of uh, area studies, mm. you know, quote unquote, right? Sure. Where, where it was, um, it was already producing a lot of knowledge, right? right? Uh, that other fields would uh, draw from, sure. Uh, and researchers about other countries that are as you know far away as possible from Southeast Asia are also reading. So, right. what kind of pressures did you feel? I think, at the time, particularly, there wasn't a huge amount written about Indonesian cinema, per se. Mm. There were a few major books. Um, there was Salim Saeed's. There was uh, Krishna Sen, um, also one by Carl Heider. There were some articles that were coming out. But, you know, since I actually started, a lot more things have come out about Indonesian mm-hmm. cinema. So mm-hmm. sort of because a lot of these major scholars didn't touch on cinema, per se, it felt like there was something that I could engage with that hadn't been sort of overanalyzed. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. You know, eventually, and and the other thing was there wasn't really any Indonesia specialists in my graduate program. Um, I, you know, for complex reasons, I decided to go to the University of Minnesota. One of them was who I was married to at the time, and she had a position there. But I also really, I wanted to go into cultural studies or an anthro program that was more theory heavy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And they had a great cultural studies department there. So um, I went there and I I certainly haven't regretted that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had, you know, I was sort of digging into theory at first rather Uh than at the same time that I was getting grants to then come to Indonesia and watch more films and go to archives and, you know, bone up on my Indonesian language skills and language programs and things like that. So this sort of came together um, slowly. But by the time I was writing my dissertation, I sort of felt the need to come back around and deal with Benedict Anderson and people like that. (laughs) (laughs) But by then, I think coming through film and coming through these other theoretical approaches, um, I felt like I had something to say to them. Um, And I actually, you know, not having ever come up through an Indonesian, an Indonesia studies program or, you know, working with people who do Indonesia studies really, I guess I was sort of, you know, to some extent taught by what I absorbed in Indonesia. Uh-huh. Uh, once I began reading Benedict Anderson particularly more seriously, I was a little surprised by some of the things that he said that have gotten around a lot right, um, right. and that have been, you know, repeated and, you know, applied to other countries and things like that. You know, in, in a nutshell, the idea of imagined communities, which is, of course, you know, his, his biggest sort of thing. I had a little problem with, you know, the concept of homogeneous empty time, Mm -hmm. um, which basically means that the way that, you know, nations or imagined communities are imagined through popular media, particularly for him, it's through uh, newspapers and novels and things like that. Uh, They're imagined as these sort of forward-looking, you know, regularly developing where time is sort of calendrical and divided into even little intervals and Mm -hmm. it's all moving Mm -hmm. forward and Mm -hmm. it's in many ways sort of forgetting about the past. And he takes Walter Benjamin's uh, split between homogeneous empty time and messianic time and sort of does away with messianic time. And messianic time is sort of how the past invades the present and affects the future and won't go away. Yeah. And that's one – so my experience of Indonesian media, that wasn't the case. Right, right. And so, you know, I've written about this to some extent, but, I, you know, I've, I really sort of saw that there was something that needed to be said about popular media, about film, but also about books and things like that where, yeah. you know, they're constantly looking backward. Yeah. And that doesn't mean they're not looking forward, sure, but they're sure. looking forward and backward at the same time. And yeah. the way they move is not regularized like that. And yeah. they often sort of pause and think about things and take them apart and put them back together again. Yeah. Um, and this is something that I think is very influential in many areas of popular culture, including mm-hmm. film. 
one of the ways you can sort of talk about it or one of the, the areas that you can see it very clearly is actually in Wayang. Mm-hmm. Um, Wayang, which is you know often associated as an old traditional media, but it's something that has continued to live and grow and be very current in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. You know, if you, Wayang is partially shadow play, but it also refers to theater, to literature, to all yeah. kinds of things. And it's basically a way of telling history. Yeah. Um, a lot of it depends on how it's deployed, right? Because yeah. I see what you mean in that it's a constant preoccupation of his in imagined communities, right. right? Because he sets up this outlook of time, this temporal right. outlook that then he's going to link to how, you know, how nations operate. Right. But it seems to me that the past is always going to be evoked because that break from the messianic mm. needs to be made, right? So the question then is, is the past just instrumental? Is it something that you conjure so that that break can somehow mm. take place? Or is it really like, like you just say, like a, like an overtaking, mm. you know, if speaking in temporal terms, like, is it really like, or now that the term people like, uh, is it really the, a specter, right? <laughs> so, um, so I guess, yeah, so I guess that's the, the distinction that I think, because obviously when there's a future, there's always going to be some kind of past. Right. The question here is, is this past just like propped up? Or right. is it really speaking somehow? Right. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I interpret him as sort of muting the past mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, and, and just the issue of time. I think the way that the past interacts with the present affects the way time is represented in popular culture in Indonesia, mm-hmm, certainly. Mm-hmm. And I think in other places, too. It seems like also in Malaysia and certainly in Thailand and probably in the Philippines as well. But, uh, yeah, if you going into Wayang, I think – and this is, this is something that uh, you can see in his earlier work, too, where he talks a lot about Wayang um, mm-hmm. and in the idea of power in Javanese culture. He includes – many, many different sort of aspects of how power functions in Javanese philosophy and things like that. But he excludes something called Goro Goro. Like he, he mentions it quickly on one page, but does not seem to see it as a big or important trope. Um, it is probably the most important trope in Wayang. And if you read what anyone else or most other people, most other scholars have written about Wayang, and if you go see a Wayang show, uh, you will see that everyone waits for Goro Goro. And mm-hmm. Goro Goro is the part that scholars write about the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the part where the you know progression of the narrative is torn apart. Um, right, right. Power is, re- is torn apart and reconstructed. There's also often a big physical storm. And, you know, the whole structure of the show, the, the expression of the show is also torn apart. So the, the clown servants or the punakawan come out and speak directly to the audience mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and address them in low Javanese often and make jokes. But they're also negotiators between, you know, the past, mm-hmm. uh, the sort of ancient story of the Ramayana, the Mahabharata that's happening on the screen before that and the present. Mm-hmm. So they sort of make comparisons and bring in contemporary political things and thank the sponsors and make jokes yeah, and do things yeah. like that and bring in other, you know, bring in tropes from other art forms and things like that. So this is where Wayang sort of also continues to grow and and mutate and mm-hmm. things like that, but also sort of stays in certain sort of basic structural aspects that stay the same. One of them is this moment where everything is torn apart. That's mm-hmm. part of its sort of basic structure, but it... This seems to be the most important trope of right, this, this right. part where you, where you not only you know, can criticize politics or promote a ruler or a powerful figure or something like that. You know, it's sort of up to the Dalang and what their position is. But you can be nakal. You, know, right, you, can, right. you can make jokes about these sort of you know, semi-sacred past things. You can, you, know, you can mess around with this whole trope that is so incredibly established and still powerful in some ways. Right. 
And this is something that I think appears in films, also in books, and I think has continued until the present in a lot of ways, where you see these sort of surprising elements or things that you might find surprising in, in Indonesian popular culture, like, you know, an example would be someone like Basurip, who I don't know if you've heard of, but he was he became a, a popular singer uh, about seven years ago or something. He's now passed away, but he's old. He looks kind of like a grandpa, but he's got dreadlocks. He used to be a street performer. Um, there's all kinds of other strange rumors about him, but he's completely wild in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. And his, he's not sort of the typical sort of pop culture idol, but he right. became extremely right. popular several years ago in Indonesia, just sort of blew up almost out of nowhere. And his, you know, his most popular song, Tak Gendung, it just goes tak gendong kamana mana, and then he sort of adds improvisational things. But it, it ends up with him sort of screaming, and the whole thing falls apart. And, and this is this is linked to a sort of temporal sensibility. How? Well, I think it's linked to the fact that art forms like this or modes of expression like this don't have to sort of stick to form in mm-hmm. a way. So they can they can sort of deconstruct themselves yeah. and tear things apart. And that that means that time is not moving forward yeah. in a regular yeah. way. That, you know, you're sort yeah. of you've sort of blown apart the whole sort of, you know, flow that you're establishing with the audience. Really but you're using using like that yeah. to communicate something else to the yeah. audience. Yeah. And you can see this also in TV programs like Opera Van Jawa. It's a comedy show, yeah. but the main source of comedy comes from the fact that everything is fake and they're constantly sort of tearing it apart also. And, <laughs> and you know, a lot of the props are just obviously, you know, pieces of paper or yeah. things like that. And that's part of the humor. I think a lot about this in that, I mean, theoretically, there's a really interesting resource you can work here about how form doesn't stay put much. Right. <laughs> you know? And I think you're right. If you take a look at what the kind of stuff that Jameson talks about, right. form is so, for him, it's like, a mark of history, right. right? So you can periodize forms right. that way, right? right? But for younger media infrastructures, that seems to not be a preoccupation or some might say, you know, it's not good, right? It doesn't help for refining, say, you know, culture, right? right? Because form actually is so important, right? In, in sort of crystallizing right. what's known as sort of, you know, acceptable or canonical sort of ways in which, say, cinema can be used or, you know, a novel should be celebrated or something like that. I mean, so I guess, simply put, how do you tell the difference then between, like, the quote-unquote relatively formlessness being, you know, a sort of temporal experimentation or just the fact that the industry isn't as developed or the discourse hasn't, you know, reached a certain level of sophistication or... Mm. At what point is it just crude? Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> and just like well, um, bad workmanship or something. I don't know. Right. I, I think you kind of get my question, right? Because yeah. there's that, you know, because when we evoke that word form, it comes yeah. from a specific history. Sure. And we're bringing it here. Right. So what are the negotiations there? Well, here's because they're obviously able to make form, you know, to sort of do that. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, the first part of Masurip's song is also, you know, sort of, just a classic pop song in some ways. It's catchy. You know, people download it a lot for their phone ringtones and things like that. And that's one of the ways that it really caught on. But then he's on the radio, he's on TV, he's everywhere. So there's a sense in which, you know, form is no problem. They Mm -hmm, can do form. mm -hmm. They can use it in a sophisticated way. But it's also not enough. Right, right. And I, 
Goro Goro or the, you know, the sort of idea that things fall apart somewhere in the show and that that's the most interesting part is also a form mm -hmm. in some ways. Mm -hmm. But it's a form that is open to sort of appropriating things and pulling things from different times and different pace, places and different right. art forms right. and, you know, having all these crazy references but that are put together in a certain way. Right, right. In a certain way that, you know, that is very much based on something that audiences – have appreciated for a long time. Right, right. You know, so you can do it in different media, um, but it, it is also a form. It's a form that, you know, if you read Jameson, is much closer to what he would call postmodern. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this, you know, looking at Goro Goro, say, as a, as a sort of an engine for postmodern form and, and you know, postmodern sort of appropriation and combinations of form and bricolage and things like that, is something that kind of takes apart his periodization of form mm -hmm, because, mm -hmm. you know, it's always supposed to go realism, right. uh, modernism, postmodernism. <laughs> right, right. But what if postmodernism has been the most popular thing since, you know, before we can remember? <laughs> then, what, <laughs> then what is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, that's, a, that's a really good point, right, in that these breaks from form, uh, really, I mean... What I'm struggling with most in this conversation is the I and the we because you're <laughs> Doug. I know you spent a lot of time in Indonesia. You're right. American. I'm here. I've studied there as well. I mean, this is another interesting right. thing about the confluence that Southeast Asia brings, right? But, yeah. you know, our quote-unquote perspective, being at Nottingham, so let's limit it to that. Nottingham, okay. a Western institution, right? We sure. internalize certain periodizations as well, right? But at the same time, you're working with the raw material that is the Southeast Asian contexts. Right. right, they really like stretch those terms, if not undo them altogether. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd love to go a few more rounds of this, but unfortunately, <laughs> we have to pause. Okay. Um, but I think we've got a good sketch of some of the key themes of uh, you know how to think about Indonesian popular culture, and if this has wet your appetite, get ready for Doug's recommendations. So, <laughs> where do they go from here to kind of explore some of the things that you've brought up? Books, websites are fine too. YouTube okay. uh, channels or whatever. Here's what I would say. I'm, I'm not going to just give theory books because I think novels are an important way to engage with this as well. And there's a writer, Eka Kuniawan, who has become right. quite well known in the last few years, although he's been around for a while, but he's been translated in the last few years into English and gotten a lot of attention, including from Benedict Anderson. Although Benedict Anderson most likes the book that is most kind of linear, which mm -hmm. I find interesting. He likes Man Tiger mm -hmm. and recommends it as the most sort of clear and coherent, you know, yeah. narrative and things like that because I think it goes better with that sort of imagined community. I personally <laughs> prefer Beauty as a Wound, okay, okay. Um, which I think much better demonstrates this kind of ability to combine the present and the past and to, you know, manipulate time in interesting ways and, you know, insert all kinds of, you know, different surprising tropes and words and, and occurrences and characters and things like that. And I think he's also a master of making this, you know, very – what is – really very loose narrative that goes all over the place, but somehow keeping your interest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is something that I find really impressive about Eka Kurniawan and that you can also read in English. Um, hopefully, I think more of his novels are being translated into English. Great, um, but great. some of the other ones that I've read in Indonesia that are recent ones are incredible also, mm -hmm. um, that, that also have this kind of looser structure. Mm -hmm. um, and he studied literature. Uh, he, he wrote a thesis at Gajamada on... Mm -hmm. Promodia, mm -hmm. but he also, you know, grew up reading trashy literature and things like that and listening to a storyteller 
who uh, was in his village, you know, who right, the kids right. would kind of gather around and was more of a traditional storyteller. So he's been able to sort of combine all these different things into an interesting kind of writing style. Interesting. Now, to wrap up and just to yeah. contextualize the discussion, uh, maybe some conclusions on <laughs> maybe in three minutes or so, what modernity means in all this, right? Because we've tried to understand it so many ways. I mean, you talked about post-modernity, but then there's hyper-modernity, there's like, you know, trans-modernity. I mean, how would you uh, place it here, uh, Indonesia more specifically? Mm. I think modernity is part of this equation, but I don't think, you know, the way I've come to look at it is that what is modern, you know, you can point to new things, new presidents, new technologies, new media, things like that. Um, there's, you know, social media has taken hold uh, in Indonesia recently. Um, and, you know, Indonesia is seen as one of the places that is, you know, most heavily uses social media and things like that. But um, I think in some ways that, that that's modernity, but modernity contains a lot of these sort of tendencies that are not necessarily modern but mm -hmm. can produce the modern. Right, that right. there isn't that there, there doesn't have to be a huge break right. for Indonesians to start using social media because some of the patterns of the ways they use social media may have to do with things that, you know, the way other media were used in the past. Right. Um, you know, this spreads things out faster and farther. But, you know, I think there are things where these kinds of media and particularly maybe some of the newest digital media that are very easily nonlinear yeah. are maybe familiar mm -hmm. in some ways or maybe have, have, you know, something that can connect to the way people have used media there in the past. And that may be one of the reasons maybe mm -hmm. that people have taken to it so well right, and, right. you know, in, in positive and negative ways. Right? Maybe we can have you on again to talk about that stuff. <laughs> okay. But, I mean, thanks for this sketch from music to cinema to social media. <laughs> I mean, great stuff, Doug. Hopefully uh, it's not incoherent. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, you know, we're in a different time zone here. I yeah. mean, temporality here is a right. bit, uh, you know. <laughs> it's Goro Goro. <laughs> yeah, it's Goro Goro, like, every day here. So um, you can look up uh, Doug's work on Google. You know, if you just Google him, you'll find loads of things on the stuff he does. Also, his uh, scholarship uh, as he teaches at University of uh, Nottingham Malaysia campus. Email the show at bfmnightschool.gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook too to type uh, BFM Night School on the search space. And thanks again, Doug, for the time and knowledge. And uh, I'm Ahmad Fat Rahma, and this is Night School on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.